the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a new state of life and light are in the hands of an angry God. Now, these sobering words are from one of the most famous sermons in history, entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was preached by American pastor, theologian Jonathan Edwards about 300 years ago. And Edwards was a contemporary of John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. They lived around the same time. Edwards first preached the sermon to his home church, uh, where apparently no remarkable response was recorded. Then on July 8, 1741, uh, Edwards preached it again at another church. And this time, he didn't even get to finish the sermon. As Edwards spoke, the congregation began to weep. And the weeping grew so loud that Edwards was forced to stop preaching. So he got down off the platform. He started moving among the people and praying with the people in small groups. So distressed were they as they heard the words that he was preaching. Well, many came to trust in Jesus that day, thanks to this sermon. And this amazing outpouring of faith was a key event in a time of extraordinary spiritual revival known as the First Great Awakening. But, but I wonder what we would make of such a sermon these days. You know, maybe even the title itself makes us somewhat uneasy. An angry God? Really? You know, if God is love, then can He be angry? Can we even speak of God as angry? You know, maybe we imagine Edwards to be that stereotypical hellfire preacher, you know, scaring people into the kingdom, you know, fear-mongering, fear-mongering with the threat of fire and brimstone. And we tend to view anger as a negative emotion, don't we? You know, getting angry means blowing your top, flying off the handle, throwing a tantrum, or simply losing it. I mean, that's how we often think about anger. You know, we associate anger with an irritable annoyance, uh, with, with violence, with being out of control. You know, angry people are easily triggered. Right? The, the smallest thing sets them off. I think, I trust most of us here don't want to be angry people. You know, some of us may be seeking to control our own anger. Or some of us may have been at the receiving end of others' angry outbursts. So we tend to think of anger as a negative emotion. And indeed, the Bible does warn us against sinning with our anger. But at the same time, the Bible also speaks of a different kind of anger, a righteous indignation that upholds God's holiness and takes God's side against sin. 
This is the sort of anger we have against wrongdoing or injustice. For example, we'd be angry when someone threatens to harm our family. To not be angry in that moment would be strange. It's It's an odd response if we're not upset. We are indignant when the vulnerable are oppressed or exploited. Uh, We get upset when a child is abused, don't we? Or when an older person loses their life savings to scammers. Don't we feel indignation in our hearts? Well, if flawed people like us are right to be morally outraged, then how much more should the holy God be angry at those who turn their backs on Him? at those who have persistently rebelled against Him. God is angry because He is good. His anger is not the cessation of His goodness. It is an expression of His goodness. Our text today is about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Last week, we heard from Isaiah 7 about how King Ahaz of the southern kingdom of Judah was troubled by an alliance between Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. So just a quick historical nugget, if if you're familiar with the history of those days, uh, Israel split apart into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and these two kingdoms were always at loggerheads with each other. So Ahaz faced a dilemma, but rather than turn to God for help, Ahaz decided to turn to the world. He looked to another power of the day. He looked to an even greater power, Assyria, the superpower of the day to save him. In our text, Isaiah shows us the folly of fearing man instead of God. Ahaz was afraid of Israel and Assyria. But our text shows us that God will judge these very nations whom Ahaz was so frightened of. And God will judge these two nations in His righteous anger. And the good news is that the Lord will save those who trust in Him. God warns us of judgment that we might flee from His wrath and be saved. This is the big idea of our text today in Isaiah 9 and 10. We are to fear God's anger and trust God's salvation. Fear God's anger, trust God's salvation. And those are the two big points in our sermon this morning. So let's begin. Fear God's anger. Isaiah 9 and 10 describe how the Lord will pour out His righteous anger against Israel and Assyria. God's judgment focuses on the sinful arrogance of these two nations. They represent human pride. So as we read these chapters, we're not meant to just point the fingers point our fingers at Israel and Assyria, we're meant to see ourselves in them, how we too are guilty of pride. We like to be first, we seek to make a name for ourselves, we want to be served more than we want to serve others, we believe we're always right, we care a lot about what other people think about us, but let's stop and consider Why is God so angered by human arrogance? Why is pride so offensive to God? It's because pride prevents praise. 
Pride robs God of the glory that He alone is worthy to receive. Pride is the opposite of thankfulness. We take credit and we give God none. Pride exalts self above God. I think that's why pride is particularly offensive to God, because it robs Him of glory. So Isaiah calls out Israel and Assyria for their pride, and he does that by looking at five aspects of pride in these two chapters. First, he looks at Israel, and he highlights in four stanzas four aspects of Israel's pride, and then he highlights a fifth aspect and that refers to Assyria, how Assyria has been arrogant. So just very quickly, these are the five aspects of pride, self-confidence, unrepentance, greed, complacency, and power. And don't, don't worry, if you can't write them all down. I'm going to go through them uh, in a moment. So these five aspects of pride. And if, if you notice in, these, in, in the first part where he deals with, he deals with Israel, it's written in four stanzas, and each stanza ends with the same refrain. Verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and then chapter 10, verse 4. They end with the same refrain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now, it's the same refrain we heard back in Isaiah 5, verse 25. And in that context, it refers to Judah. I think that tells us that both Judah and Israel are in the same boat. Judah can't think that it's better than its northern neighbour. God's judgment on Israel foreshadows what will happen to Judah unless Judah repents. And as we read these chapters about judgment, it foreshadows God's final judgment that will fall on the whole world. And the repeated warnings of God's anger that echo throughout these chapters reminds us of our urgent need. Without Jesus, all of us are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Unless we repent and seek the Saviour, we too will likewise perish. So let's look at aspect number one, arrogant self-confidence. Let me read for us from verses 8 to 12. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The Lord has spoken a word of judgment against Israel. And in the first two verses, he warns us that judgment will surely fall on the nation, which is also known as Ephraim and its capital, Samaria. What's Israel's problem? Verse 9 tells us, pride and arrogance of heart. It's a pride that shows itself, right? It's pride of, pride of heart that manifests itself in its words and actions. 
Israel is basically self-confident. You know, Israel expects to always bounce back better from whatever happens. And indeed, at this time when Isaiah is writing this, Israel was under King Jeroboam II. And under King Jeroboam II, Israel was at the peak of its power and prosperity. Things were going really well. The kingdom was very large. So Israel was particularly sure of his own strength. And Israel makes light of judgment. It kind of says, well, if the walls fall down, we'll just build stronger walls. If you cut down the trees, we'll plant bigger trees, taller trees, stronger trees. You know, I, I describe Israel's attitude as a can-do spirit. We can do it. Nothing will faze us. We'll always come back stronger. I think some of us can relate to Israel's can-do attitude. You know, when, when trouble comes, maybe for some of us, our first instinct is to make a plan, to troubleshoot to know that we can fix it ourselves. We trust our own intelligence, our street smarts, our resourcefulness. We trust our own strength, our abilities, our qualifications. Maybe we look back on our lives and say, hey, we've, we've accomplished so much. Surely we can keep doing what we need to do. Nothing will get in the way. You know, we find security in what we can do. We find security in what we own. We find security in what we have done. And we take pride, don't we, in being self-sufficient, in being self-reliant. We, we don't like to ask for help because we don't want to bother others, but also because we don't want others to think that we don't have it all together. So we're reluctant to ask for help, even though we know we really need it. And that's pride. We like to think that we have our lives under control, and perhaps for some of us, life is going according to plan. We feel as though we don't need God. Maybe, maybe we have a God of the gaps that kind of just plucks the gaps. But, but we kind of have the most of it really under control. So we listen less to His Word. Perhaps we pray less. Or, or we find it less necessary to gather with God's people for worship, for fellowship, for encouragement. Because we, hey, you know, life is going great. God can just remain on the sidelines. But you live long enough and then you realize that the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. The sovereign God can overturn and upset our schemes and dreams just like that. And in Israel's case, you see how the Lord raises up the Syrians and the Philistines to knock Israel off its proud perch. In our case, it may be a setback in our studies, those of us who are still in school. Uh, it may be a broken relationship, a moral failure, difficult illness, the loss of a job, or a crushing disappointment. So when the Lord humbles us, when the Lord brings trouble into our lives, will we turn to Him? Our well, second aspect of arrogance is found in verses 13 to 17. Arrogant unrepentance. Let me read that out for us. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honoured man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide these people have been leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up 
Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. When God brings trouble and trials into our lives, we should not assume that difficulties will automatically lead us back to God. It doesn't always happen. Hardship can harden our hearts against the Lord. Hardship can breed resentment and bitterness towards the Lord, leading us even further away from Him. And we see this happening to Israel here, don't we? Israel remains hardened in the face of God's discipline, unrepentant. Look at verse 13. The people did not seek to return to the Lord who struck them, did not inquire of Him. You notice how He's called the Lord of hosts. He's the King who rules over the vast armies of heaven. But Israel says to Him, thanks, but no thanks. Don't need your help. Got it all under control. Too proud to return to God, Israel would rather listen to the lies of its leaders, unfaithful elders and prophets who lead them astray. Verses 15 and 16. So who are we really listening to? Who or what has the most influence in our lives? And when trouble comes, do we turn to the Lord or do we turn to other sources for wisdom and for help? Well, the Lord will remove the leaders who are harming His people. I think that's a sobering thing for me to think about as one of the elders here at GBC. I'd like to invite us to really pray for the leaders of this local church. Pray fundamentally that we would be faithful to God and His Word. May we be kept from a worldly pragmatism that chooses expedience over God's truth. Maybe be kept by a, a timid desire to keep following the path of least resistance rather than to do what is faithful and true. May, may God keep us from that. Now pray First Timothy 4.16 for the elders that we would closely watch our lives as well as our doctrine, our teaching, so that we will save both ourselves as well as our hearers. Pray also for those among us who lead in the family. Pray for husbands. Pray for fathers. Pray that we would also be kept from following the world's wisdom in how we care for our homes, in how we parent our children or care for our wives. Pray for husbands and fathers that we would lead our families faithfully according to God's truth. Well, these verses tell us that God holds not only the leaders responsible, but also those who listen to them. Rather than repent, the, the people follow leaders who lead them astray. Look at verse 17. Every, it says there, every, God's judgment will fall on everyone, even the young, the orphans, and the widows. Sin has spread across the whole nation. Verse 17, everyone is godless. No one will be spared from God's wrath. 
He will judge the false teachers, but He will also hold us responsible if we listen to false teaching. You know, we, we may not be able to stop false teachers from speaking all the time, but we can choose to stop listening. Aspect number three, arrogant greed. Arrogant greed. Let me read for us from verses 18 to 21. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right but are still hungry and they devour on the left but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So here in these verses, Isaiah tells us that God will judge Israel for its greed. And we see in these verses how Israel has a constant craving for more. You know, they slice meat on the right, they devour on the left. But we notice how Isaiah says that they never have enough. They are never satisfied. And friends, have we ever considered whether the reason why we are constantly discontented and restless is because we may be greedy. Greed will consume us. You know, Isaiah likens greed to a blazing fire that burns the whole nation to a smoldering, smoking ruin. The relentless quest for more that society keeps telling us is a good thing will burn us out. Greed is arrogant because it is concerned only with serving self, not others. You know, greed makes life all about me, accumulating more stuff for me. I want more for myself. Now, arrogant greed destroys relationships. It makes us use people instead of serving them. You know, look, look at verse 21. These verses speak of how Israel degenerates into internal strife, division, and disunity. And we, we kind of get that, don't we? If, if, if society is self-serving, surely at some point it will tear itself apart. Sure enough, after these words were recorded, Israel descended into the chaos of civil war after the death of Jeroboam II. And these verses tell us that that civil war is God's judgment. You know, such self-serving greed will hurt our fellowship with one another. Self-serving greed will undermine our unity as the people of God. You know, imagine we all come to church and we're all thinking the same thing, what's in it for me? Right? Imagine if all of us simply thought that when we come to church, you know, what, what, what kind of church life would we have? Maybe no church life. Right? Everyone's just coming with the idea, what's in it for me? Well, that, that's exactly what Isaiah is describing here in these verses of self-serving greed. You know, pray. Pray that God would help us repent of any attitude that hinders us from knowing, from loving, and from serving one another. 
Aspect number four, arrogant complacency. Let me read for us from chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. So verse 13 tells us how Israel's rulers have made themselves rich by taking advantage of the vulnerable, the poor and the needy. Instead of serving those in society who need help, they exploit them. And they imagine themselves to be safe because of their money and possessions. They imagine that prosperity can lead to security. Prosperity, indeed, can make us proud and complacent. Now, wealth can often lull us into a false sense of security. But when God's judgment comes, Israel's unjust rulers will realize too late that cash is not king. Verse 3, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? You know, they exalted themselves, but they will be brought low to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. A again, we're faced with the same question, aren't we? When crisis comes, who or what will we trust? Can our prosperity save us? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? My friends, beware of being so preoccupied with comfort and convenience that we become blind to our true spiritual need. Jesus rebuked the lukewarm Laodiceans with these words, he said to them, to the church, you say I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. A fifth aspect of arrogance, arrogant power. Let me read for us from verses 5 to 19 in chapter 10. Arrogant power. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to, de to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders like kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, 
he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand, I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forests and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a mad, sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forests will be so few that a child can write them down. Well, because of Israel's arrogant self-confidence, Israel's unrepentance, Israel's greed and complacency, God's anger has not turned away. I think verse 6 is a sobering description of Israel. God calls them the people of my wrath. What a frightening description to be called the people of God's wrath. Now, do we realize that if we persist in our unrepentance, in our rejection of God, we are the people of His wrath? God is holy. He is long-suffering to bear with our sin. He puts up with us because He's patient. But there is a limit to His patience. For Israel, God's judgment will finally fall on them in the form of the invading Assyrians. I think what is striking in these verses is that God gives us a peek behind the scenes and we see Assyria actually under God's control. God is the one who uses the Assyrians to judge Israel. At that time, Assyria terrified and terrorized the world. Their hunger for conquest was insatiable. Their war machine unstoppable, toppling one kingdom after another. You know, but, but the point in these verses isn't the might of Assyria. It's God's power and God's absolute sovereignty over all nations, including over the nations that do not even know Him, that do not acknowledge Him. Now, these verses tell us that Assyria, as powerful as it is, is merely a tool in God's hands to accomplish God's plans. For its part, arrogant Assyria has no intention of serving God. All Assyria cares about is its own lust for power. Verse 7, it is in his heart to destroy, to cut off nations, not a few. Assyria boasts about the might of his military commanders. Verse 8, he boasts about the cities he has conquered. Verses 9 to 11, he boasts about his own power. Verse 13, 
by the strength of my hand. I have done it by my wisdom. I have understanding. I think this wouldn't sound out of place in our world today, would it? We live in a world that tells us to market ourselves, to promote ourselves, uh, to, to, to put ourselves forward in the best possible light, uh, to, to really have self-esteem, kind of boast about our own achievements, our own accomplishments, our own abilities. A serious boast would not sound out of place in our merit-based system, which makes the winners think that they deserve it because they are stronger, smarter, or have worked harder. My friends, do we really believe that we are where we are through our own strength and wisdom? Will we agree with what Assyria says in verse 13? I am what I am because I have done it. Well, maybe none of us may be so crass as to say that out loud, but do we believe that deep down in our hearts? How have we forgotten to be grateful to God, our Creator and Provider? Now consider our abilities, consider our talents, our opportunities, even consider the fact that we live here in this land, in this time and age, not in other places. Now, have they not been entrusted to us by the God who is sovereign over our lives? What do we have that we did not receive? Why do we boast as if we did not receive it? Friends, the self-made man is a myth. Do we realize that we are but instruments in God's hands? So not to us, but to His name, give glory. Look at verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnifies itself against him who wields it? God is the one who wields the axe. Assyria has no place boasting of his own strength and wisdom. And God will punish arrogant Assyria just as God will punish arrogant Israel. Right, verse 17, the light of Israel will become a fire and His Holy One a flame. God will humble the proud who will exalt themselves for He will not give His glory to another. And Assyria's military is no match for the King of Heaven's armies. The Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among Assyria's stout warriors. Verse 16. And the message to us is clear. Fear God, not man. Boast in God, not ourselves. Here in these verses, we, we see these two complementary truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We, we see how the sovereign God uses Assyria as His instrument of judgment. And at the same time, God holds arrogant Assyria responsible for its sinful pride and actions. These two truths, God is sovereign, we are responsible. How exactly do these two truths fit together? I don't know. The inner workings of divine sovereignty and human responsibility are a mystery that God has chosen not to reveal to us. But what we do know is that since Scripture holds these two truths together, so must we. 
both truths finally help us to understand the cross of Christ. God sovereignly sent His Son to die for sinners and it was our sins that nailed Him to the cross. Both are true. He is sovereign. We are responsible. God's anger is against the arrogant, against sin. Well, as God's people, do we share His righteous indignation against sin? Do we love God by hating our own sin? Listen to these words from John Stott. There is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, His people should hate it too. If evil arouses His anger, it should arouse ours also. Good things to think about and talk about. How can we be angry and sin not? So God judges the arrogant, fear God's anger against arrogance. Number two, trust God's promise to save. Praise God that His anger isn't like ours. And even in wrath, God remembers mercy. Let me read for us from verses 20 to 34, chapter 10. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Syrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you, as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. and My anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Ai, he has passed through Migran, at Michmash he stores his baggage, they have crossed over the pass, at Geba they lodge for the night, Ramah trembles, Gibeah of Saul has fled, Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Laisha. O poor Anathoth. Matma is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. <coughs> I think these verses basically tell us that even in wrath, God remembers mercy. He remains faithful, gracious and compassionate 
And in these verses, God promises not to wipe out His people, but to preserve a remnant by His grace, just as He has promised. Verse 20, there will be a remnant of Israel and survivors of the house of Jacob. God will discipline, not destroy. God's people in that moment will learn to lean on the Lord and not Assyria. Trials are meant to wean us off false hopes and false confidence. Trials train us to trust God. That, that's one of the reasons why God brings difficulties into our lives. God uses the difficult things in our lives to reveal ourselves, to show us where our hearts are at. And God brings difficult things into our lives to show us Himself, what He's like, and how He remains faithful. And these verses tell us that He is the Lord, the faithful covenant-keeping God whose word never fails. He is the Holy One, glorious in His perfections and purity, the one who is not like us, and therefore we should trust Him. He's the Holy One of Israel. He is a personal God. He is our God, and we are His people if we have believed in the Son whom He, whom he has sent to save us. And indeed, the, the Lord saves. Verse 21 resounds with amazing grace and hope. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Verse 21 gives us the promise of repentance and redemption. This same promise was held out to Ahaz in chapter 7, summed up in the name of Isaiah's son, Shear Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. Ahaz pretended to be pious and refused to believe God's promise. So don't be like him. Instead, trust in God's good promises. And verse 22 reminds us not to presume on God's grace because only a remnant will return. God's judgment is righteous and just. God has promised to save, but we must trust Him. The people of Israel were many, but only a remnant had true faith in God. So friends, don't assume that we are spiritually safe because we are at church regularly, because most of our friends and family are Christians. Don't assume, but only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, we realized that before the first great awakening, when Edwards was preaching, he was preaching that to churches. There are many churchgoers in Edwards' day, but only a smaller minority of Christians. Hence the sermon. Right? Don't take these things for granted. Trust in the Lord. Consider the state of your own heart. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you leaned on Him for salvation? God encourages Judah to not be afraid of the Assyrians. Look at verse 24. He calls them, my people. He says to Judah, you dwell in Zion, where the Lord is present with His people. And God reminds His people of His faithfulness in the past, when He rescued them from Egypt. You know, beloved, when trials come, we remind ourselves of how God has been faithful to us in the past. If, if you struggle to think of maybe one event, Think of the cross, how the cross supremely shows God's faithfulness to us in the past, and, and that never changes. He is always a saviour to those who trust in Him. 
in Christ, we are God's people. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And if Jesus saves us from our greatest enemies of sin and death, then how will He not also deliver us from any earthly troubles? We have an unshakable hope in Christ. If in God we trust, we shall not be afraid. What can man do to us? Fear God, not man. After the repeated warnings of God's anger, how comforting to hear the assuring words of verse 25. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. There is a limit to God's anger. God and His righteous anger will use Assyria to discipline and purify His people, but He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. When God's sanctifying work is done, His anger will be redirected against the arrogant Assyrians to their destruction. So verses 26 to 27 tell us God will defeat Assyria just as He defeated Midian and Egypt in the past. He will remove the Assyrian yoke from His people's neck. God uses oppression, opposition and persecution to purify His church. And for a while, it may seem as though the wicked prosper, but God has a day of judgment in store to punish those who harm His people. So don't go weary, although we may be called to suffer for a season. Assyria is God's tool to discipline and purify His people. Verses 28 to 31 describe Assyria's campaign of terror as it conquers place after place in Judah. But remember that God, not Assyria, is in control. God sets the limits of Assyria's advance and he will draw the line and say to the Assyrians, you shall not pass. God will not allow Assyria to go any further. You know, he, notice how verse 32 says, this very day he will stop at Nob, which is, a, which is a town pretty close to Jerusalem. Assyria can only shake his fists at Zion, but he will not enter the city. Verses 18 and 19, in verses 33 and 34, liken Assyria to a mighty forest made of towering trees, but God will chop it down. God will bring low, lofty Assyria. The arrogant axe will be axed. The mighty will fall, and God will keep His word. If you read on in Isaiah, in chapter 37, that's where God keeps His word, to destroy the Assyrian army, chapter 37. And in graciously preserving a remnant, God shows His faithfulness to the promises that He made years ago to Abraham and to David. That's why God preserves a remnant, because from this remnant, He will raise up a promised king in the line of David. And this king will establish God's kingdom, He will save God's people, and He will bless the world. We saw that in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is why God preserves a remnant, because His saving purposes will not come to an end. And He has ultimately kept His word to us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners like us. God made us to glorify Him. All of us have turned our backs on Him. We have turned away 
from God who made us. And without the Saviour, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still His enemies, in His angry hands, God sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for all who would trust in Him. Jesus took on Himself the full weight of God's anger against sin. God's wrath and judgment fully poured out, not on the sinner, but on the Saviour. And Jesus died so that we might be forgiven, so we can be reconciled to God if we trust in Him. And He rose from the dead to give us new life. Jesus has defeated our worst enemies, Satan, sin, death. And this is the good news, that if we trust in Jesus He has fully satisfied God's righteous anger against us for our sins. There is now no condemnation, no anger for those of us who are in Christ. He saves us from being the people of His wrath to being His beloved children. Yes, we still experience trials and troubles in this life, But beloved, know that when we experience trials, these are not punishment from an angry God. But if we are in Christ, then the trials we experience are from the loving hand of a Father who disciplines us for our good. The trials are not punishment if we have a loving Heavenly Father in Christ. They help us to grow more like our Saviour. Jonathan Edwards didn't just proclaim hellfire. He preached about the judgment of an angry God to awaken sinners to their need of the only Saviour, Jesus Christ. In the same sermon, Edward pleads with his hearers to run to Jesus. And he says these words, Now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. Let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. Oh, friends, fear God's anger and trust in God's salvation. Do we sense our need for Jesus? I pray that we would turn to Him today without delay. He will save you. Lean on the Lord and live by faith in Him.